Amen. Amen. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and casteth their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And Father, we come to you this morning and... We see from the scripture passage in Revelation that, Jesus, you are the object of worship. And Lord, may you be the object of all that we do here today, all we do here this morning, all we think, all we speak, all we sing. Lord, it's all about you. And we thank you, Father, that, that we can lift our hearts up to you now and we can not only praise you, but we can have open hearts, so I pray you would open up our hearts now to receive that which you would have for us today, please. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Good morning, family. I do thank you for uh, your prayers for my dad. He's having a procedure tomorrow. Hopefully that'll help strengthen his vertebrae and his back, and after that, Lord willing, he'll be in rehab and... Uh, headed home shortly after that. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your prayers for Jackie. She's under the weather, has been since Thursday. So thank you for that. And I thank the Lord for Pastor Ange. We talked about his birthday. We thank you, Lord, for Ange. And <laughs> another year God's given him. And uh, Jackie and I celebrate our 43rd wedding anniversary this coming Thursday. So oh, we're... Hey. We're grateful for that. You know, 43 years God has given us, or soon to be 43 years. So, uh, Family, if you would open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 12. And by the way, welcome back, Phyllis. Glad you're feeling better. Yeah, Phyllis! Acts chapter 12, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 24 this morning. And the title of today's message is, What is Fair? And I think that's probably an appropriate question because it seems to me, and I have asked that question before, and maybe you have as well, more than likely you have, in one situation or another, what's fair? And when we ask the question, what's fair, what, what we're implying is, well, something's not fair. Isn't that the truth? Yep. So we're going to examine this passage of Scripture and then talk about that towards the end. But... As we look at verses 1 and 2, it says here, Now about the time Herod, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. So Herod clearly had it on his heart. He's, he's going to harass the church. Uh, he's, he's not happy with what's taking place. And, of course, he sees that, that his power, some of his power, has been uh, shifted the devotion of the people has gone from King Herod to this man, this God named Jesus Christ, and there's followers of Jesus Christ. Well, and he's not happy. And it says here, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. But let's back up to the first part of verse 1. It says, in about that time. And what time is that? Well, the time frame is that which was prophesied by Agabus in the last chapter, Verse 28, where it says, And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So that's the time frame. And when this took place, and of course he sees what's taking place in the church, Herod, that's mentioned here, he is Herod Agrippa I. He ramped up his persecution of the church. And we see here that he ordered the killing of James. James is the first murder of an apostle in the book of Acts. And he was beheaded. That was the preferred means of execution in those days. Beheaded with a sword. James is an apostle. 
the brother of John the Apostle. And John, of course, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles with his name on them. James and John in Mark chapter 3 are called the sons of thunder for good reason. They tried to call fire down from heaven and Jesus said, no, that's not for you to do. I'll take care of business for you. And he does, doesn't he? Well, this Herod Agrippa I, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. And remember, Herod the Great, he ordered the murder of all the baby boys in the city of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. So this is quite a line of Herods. The uncle of Herod Agrippa I is Herod Antipas, who ordered the death of John the Baptist. So what we have here is a dynasty of murderers. They're an awful dynasty. They ruled the southern region of Israel called Judea, of which Jerusalem is a part, and they ruled under the authority of Rome. But here's how sick Herod was, this Herod that's mentioned right here in this chapter. Verse 3 says, And because, because he saw it pleased the Jews, Herod saw, hey, listen, I'm going to execute James. He executes James, and it pleased the Jews. So he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Herod had difficulty ruling in Judea because Judea was made up of Jews and there was a long history of dislike among them. So this Herod that's spoken of here, he, he did what he could to appease the Jews. So when he ordered the murder of James, Herod's stock went up, so to speak, among the Jews in Jerusalem. And these Jews in Jerusalem were pleased with the murder of this Christ follower, this, this man, this apostle named James. So Herod saw their approval, and he thought, well, if they thought the death of one Christian was good, then the death of another had to be doubly good. So he arrested Peter, and he planned on putting Peter to death. At the time, it was the, the days of unleavened bread, a Jewish feast, seven days that followed the Passover. So together with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it encompasses eight days. And more than likely, Peter was arrested just before Passover because the, the Jews didn't allow trial or executions during these feast days. So when Peter was arrested, it tells us in verse 4, when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter or Passover to bring him forth to the people. So Herod's intention was to behead Peter as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread was completed. And the irony of the religious system, well, it's okay to behead someone, just don't do it during one of the feast days. Right? The irony of religion doesn't make any sense to us. The religious law wouldn't allow that. But aside from that, okay, we can take care of him, but not during the feast days. So these soldiers that guarded Peter, four quaternions it's called here, four groups of four, and each group of four rotated every three hours. And verse 5 says, And therefore was kept in prison, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So he's chained to the guards. One guard chained, chained to his right arm and one chained, chained to his left arm. And then there was guards stationed outside of the prison doors. Well, you would think, well, isn't that a bit of overkill? Well, apparently not. Because Peter had a reputation for prison breaks. Turn to Acts chapter 5, back a few chapters, and we're just going to read a few verses here. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, it says, and, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple of the people all the words of this life. And then jump down to verse 22. It says, But when the officers came, they found them not in the prison. They returned and told of it. And then verse 25, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you have put in prison are standing in the temple, 
and teaching the people. So yes, God orchestrated a prison break back in chapter 5. We see Peter imprisoned once again here in Acts chapter 12. So what are they doing? Well, they're doubling up their duty here, aren't they? Herod's determined not to go through the embarrassment of a prisoner escaping again. Verse 5 again says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And the church at Jerusalem realized that Herod isn't just arresting the apostles. He's killing them. That's, That's his plan. They knew that James had already been executed, and it looks to them like Peter is next. And now they knew that no human effort could get Peter out of prison. It would have required a supernatural act of God. So what did they do? They prayed. They prayed. Prayer by the saints, for the saints, to God. That's what we should be doing too. Praying for one another. Because we're all going through something, aren't we? Some things seem bigger, some things seem smaller, but we're all going through something. We need to, as they describe here in the book of Acts, they prayed unto God for one another. They turned to the only one that they knew could help. Peter's in prison. It doesn't look like he's going to get out. He's chained to guards. There's guards outside. There's guards outside that outside. What are we going to do? We're going to pray. And we're going to ask the Lord to take care of him. They turned to the one who was a present help in trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But the question is, you know, where, where do you turn? Where do we turn when trouble arises? And I would suggest that trouble arises virtually every day of some sort, doesn't it? Where do you turn when trials hit? Maybe the storms of life that are, that are pounding on your shores that you don't know what to do with. Well, the early church, they didn't know what to do either. They, they realized, well, I can't do anything about this, so I'm gonna, we're going to go before God. And you know, family, that's why he's called our present help in trouble. Yes, he's our past help too. He's our future help, but the beautiful thing when God says, I'm your present help, we can go to him right now. You're faced with something, go to him right now and bring it before the throne of God. And the early church says here, the saints were praying without ceasing for Peter. Verse 6 says, when Herod would have brought him forth. This was the eighth day at the close of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, God waits now. He waits until the eighth day. He doesn't spring Peter loose from prison on day two, day three, day four, day six, day seven. No, God waits until the last moment. But God's timing is perfect. And why didn't he get him out sooner? I don't know. That's what God chose. So Herod went to bring Peter forth in order to execute him. And and what's Peter doing? Well, it tells us in verse six that he was sleeping. He was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers of the guards before the door kept the prison. Put yourself in in Peter's shoes right now. I'm not sure I'd be sleeping. He's sound asleep, bound in chains to two guards while other guards are stationed outside the cell guarding the gates. And that, to me, is, is remarkable. Mind you, this is the night before his execution. He's chained to two guards, sound asleep on a, on a cold dirt floor. He didn't have a sleep number one. He didn't have a mattress. It's a cold dirt floor. And Peter knows that the next day may be his last. But well, there's no panic. Do you see any panic recorded here? There's none. He's not counting down the hours. He's not counting down the minutes. But you know what, family? Even the last minute is a lot of time for God, isn't it? He doesn't need great amounts of time to do anything. He fashioned the whole universe in six days. Why six days? Because that's what he chose to do. Could he have done it in an instant? Absolutely, he can do anything. He's never in a hurry. 
And it's often said that man's extremity is God's opportunity because we cry out to him. Peter had tremendous peace. You might be wondering why. Well, there's several reasons for that. Remember after Peter denied Jesus three times, think back to what Jesus told Peter. Among other things, he said, he said feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and feed my sheep. So, there must be more work to be done. I'm sure that's in the back of Peter's mind, or maybe in the front of his mind. There's some feeding to do here. But not only that, in John 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to Peter, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you're old, you're going to stretch forth your hands. Speaking of what? The crucifixion. And I believe Peter held on to these promises. He wasn't yet old. And the method of execution planned by Herod, as with James, was beheading with a sword. And even though the conditions that, that Peter was in were awful, they were deplorable, he had a promise from Jesus. And he knows that somehow something will happen because he wasn't yet old, he would die of crucifixion and not by the sword. So he, had, he held peace in his heart. Why? He was holding on to the promises of God, wasn't he? And I'm sure those words of Jesus were just ringing in his head. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Peter took those words to heart, didn't he? Yes, the prophecy of Jesus, how he, he would die when he's old, and also the peace that Jesus promised. Well, how about you? Do you, have you, will you take those promises of Jesus to heart? They're for you. They're for me. And you know, as Peter held on to those promises of, of Jesus, not only for peace, but that this would not be the day of his execution. I think back to early on, I mean, before God even called me into the ministry, I remember we were down in a, in a service in Florida, and uh, the, the pastor got up to share, and all of a sudden, my wife, Jake, starts bawling her eyes out. And I mean, he's not five seconds into this message, and I didn't know why. I said, what's going on? I mean, he really hasn't said much yet. She wouldn't tell me. But later on, she shared with me that that would be, would be your husband one day. And she never told me until after that was her husband one day. But what happened in the meantime, I had a, a, a cancer scare. You know, between the time that God said that will be your husband one day, and then there was a cancer scare, and then it went away. I mean, and she held on to that promise. God, you, you can't take him now. This is what you told me just like with the Apostle Peter. So God, God's promises are true. Hold on to them. But I want to talk about this scene here just for a, a few moments, this scene that we see. And the picture of Peter in prison, the picture it represents and the picture that it paints. Well, Peter, he's in chains in prison. And when you think about someone in chains in a prison, you know, most people would say, this is looking pretty dismal. This is looking pretty hopeless. There was nothing that Peter could do to free himself. I mean, he was bound. Nothing that he could do. And for certain, when you look at Peter, who is bound in chains, nothing he can do to free himself or save himself, it's a picture of the sinner's condition. And that is without real hope, because... None of us can save ourselves. It's a picture of every single one of us before we came to Christ. We were asleep spiritually. We were bound in chains of our sin. 
We were guarded by Satan's agents. And there was a death sentence over our head, wasn't there? And that's, family, that's the state of sinful man apart from Jesus Christ. A man cannot save himself or even free himself. But I'll tell you what, most of us have tried, haven't we? We tried to work our salvation off. We tried to work our way into heaven through good works or whatever it might be, being churchgoers, good people, whatever it is. But you know what? We're bound by even one single sin. If we've sinned in one point of the law, we've, we've sinned against them, them all. That's the, the, the chains that we were in. But we see here in verse 7, while Peter's sleeping, it says, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him or stood by, and a light shined into that prison. And as with the apostle Peter, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world to us. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. And that's how we came to Christ. The light of the gospel opened up our hearts, brought light into this darkness, and brought us to salvation. And family, that is why we bring the gospel and proclaim the way of salvation, because apart from that, men are asleep in their sin don't necessarily recognize how serious sin is and the nature of sin, how, how deadly it is. And they need to be awakened. And when the Lord enters our lives, the chains of bondage, they fall off miraculously, just like we see here in this prison scene. Didn't that happen with you when you came to Christ? He freed you. Did you have to try to rip chains off of your, your spiritual life? No, they dropped off. Why? Because the light of the world entered into your heart. The chains of bondage to sin, they dropped off, just like we're seeing in this account. So here in this chapter, the glory of God lit up this prison cell and Peter continued to sleep. Well, so here's the angel. The, the glory of God enters this prison cell and I'm sure the angel's looking at Peter. Peter's sound asleep and he needed to awake Peter. So what did he do? He, he smote Peter on the side. And behold, verse 7, the angel of the Lord came in upon him and a light shined in the prison and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. This angel's not messing around, is he? No. Peter, we got to get you out of here. He struck him. He sat him up and he said, Arise up quickly. And the angel said to him, verse 8, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist or knew not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them out of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. The angel did what he was sent to do. Shackles dropped, gates opened, and then the angel disappeared. And when Peter, verse 11, was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the people of the Jews. At first, Peter didn't know what happened. As he began to think about it, he thought, well, yeah. Yeah, I've been delivered. It wasn't just a vision. I wasn't imagining this. I wasn't dreaming. Here I am. I'm free. And sometimes we realize after the fact that the Lord did it all. <laughs> Something happens in your life, and, and you look back and, and see, yeah. That had to be the Lord. The Lord's hand was in it. And perhaps we should see it right away, but often we don't acknowledge it until afterwards. After we think, we ponder. We say, yeah, that could not possibly have happened any other way other than God doing it. But the important thing isn't necessarily the when, but rather that we do, that we acknowledge God's hand. In verse 12, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. I'd suggest Peter knew where the prayer meetings were held. 
because he attended them, and that they were praying for him. And as Peter, verse 13, knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, named Rhoda. She came to answer the door. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. Rhoda, she's so excited. That, that's Peter's voice out there. Let me go tell the others. And in the meantime, Peter's standing outside the gate. Let me go tell the others. And that's exactly what she did. She ran, and they said to her, and they, thou art mad. This is verse 15. In other words, you're crazy. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, it's his angel. <laughs> Come on, you're praying for him. And Peter's at the door. So apparently they believed in angels but doubted the miracle. But you know, it makes me think about this. It's a good thing that the sovereignty of God is greater than our faith, isn't it? They're praying, and, and I suppose that they're, they're asking God to free Peter, and maybe with some measure of faith, God, we know you can do this, but man, we don't really think you're going to do it. They began to doubt. Peter's knocking on the door. Let me in, let me in. No, no, this can't possibly be you. We're praying for you, right? Well, God calls us to pray, and sometimes our prayers aren't full of faith, are they? Sometimes they're just not. We can't pray perfectly. We don't pray perfectly, but we can pray perfectly in one way. Father, your will be done and not my own. Isn't that Jesus' prayer? And God didn't answer that, that prayer of Jesus to spare him the wrath, but he knew it was God's plan. God knows what we need. He knows when we need it. The people were praying. Well, they prayed, and the answer to their prayer is standing right in front of them, but they didn't believe God answered. But despite the weakness of their faith, here God takes what they do offer to him. He, he adds his grace, doesn't he? And he answers their prayers. And, and family, this is an encouragement to me, and I hope it is to you too, because I know, I know my prayers are weak. I know my prayers sometimes lack faith. I know my prayers are imperfect. Why? Because it comes from an imperfect heart. I think of the, the father that's mentioned in Mark chapter 9. He, he prayed for his son who was demon-possessed. In Mark 9, 24, it says, And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I believe, Lord, but my belief isn't as strong as it should be. Sometimes our prayers are just a word or two. Lord, help. Did you ever cry out to the Lord that way? Lord, help. He knows what you need. He knows what you're praying, even though the words are very brief. We don't have to pray in the King James English, do we? No. It's a wonderful thing when we can pray the Scriptures. It's a beautiful thing. But sometimes just a word. You know those words, Lord, help, I've prayed that many times. But even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray or even what to say. God deals with that too. Romans 8, 26, and this is so beautiful. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes we just go, ah. Oh. Spirit of God says, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're asking, even though you may not know what you're asking. And what's he do? He interprets those. Brings them right before the throne of God. So the Lord answered their prayers for Peter. Verse 16 says, Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. <laughs> Peter, you're interrupting our prayer meeting. Don't you know that? <laughs> They're shocked. And here's the reason for their shock. No one escapes a Roman prison, especially with the security detail assigned to Peter. Now keep in mind, too, you know, the scriptures are so beautiful, yet sometimes we can't quite capture the emotion, can we? Peter's life is in danger. 
due to his escape. They're not just going to ignore him. So there's an emotion there. I mean, we got to get things moving here. Peter, you got to move on. Come on in. Finally, we recognize it's you. And they're concerned clearly. And verse 7 says, But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace. In other words, I know you're excited, but kind of keep it quiet. He declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James. Now that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what had become of Peter. Of course not. I mean, the prison cell's empty. These, these, now who's panicking? It's the guards. They're panicking. And when Herod had sought for him, verse 19, and found him not, he examined the keepers of the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Herod, he, he went ahead and examined the guards thinking this, this had to be an inside job. Nobody could escape. And it was serious business because if a prisoner escaped under the keep of the guards, those guards would receive the sentence of the prisoner that had escaped. So they had a death sentence over their head. Verse 20 says, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Why? I'm not sure. It doesn't quite say it here. But because Herod supplied them with food, they wanted to make amends, and they coordinated through this guy named Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, who made an appointment with Herod. That's kind of like an aside. In verses 21 and 22, and upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, Mind you, they, he made this agreement with Tyre and Sidon, and out comes this hero, Herod. He's arrayed in fine apparel, royal apparel. He sat upon his throne and made an oration. He began to speak unto them, great flowing words, I'm sure, and the people gave a shout, saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. What were they doing? They were worshiping Herod. What did Herod do? He took it all in. He took it all in rather than giving glory to God. And it says here in verse 23, and immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms, yuck, and gave up the ghost. He smote him on the spot. Now, in contrast to the work of Herod and the opposition of God and his work, verse 20 tell, 24 tells us this, but the word of God grew and multiplied. You see, Herod couldn't stand against God and his word and succeed. No one can stand against the Lord and succeed. And God dealt with Herod in a pretty serious way, didn't he? Now, I want to take a look at this passage in a little bit different light because when, you know, the message is about what is fair. And when I read this passage, a question comes to my mind. And maybe it did yours too. How is it that James dies and Peter lives? You know, I read this and I, I think, well, that just doesn't seem right that one apostle would die and another would live. They're both apostles. You know, if they, if they both were executed, yeah, okay, I understand it. If they both lived, I understand that too. You see, they both served the same God. They had the same call of God upon their lives, and I wonder why. And when I look at the Apostle James, not only was he one of only 12 men in the entirety of history to be called an apostle, he was one of the inner circle, along with Peter and John. He was present with them and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, only those three. He was present with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus speak. He saw the miracles. He was a witness to the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, 
his life was taken by a notorious man named Herod. Why? How does something like that happen? After that, all that God has clearly invested in the Apostle James, well, again, it brings up the question, what's fair? We've all experienced times in our life where we say that just doesn't seem fair, does it? You know, a, a child dies, a marriage crumbles, a job is lost for, for no apparent reason, serious illness strikes, someone we know and love is diagnosed with cancer, and we wonder why. Why did this storm take out our home? Or a fire, or some tragedy. Why are some people victims of crime and not others? Well, I think it's important that we, family, we need to learn how to process this in a proper spiritual way, in a spiritually healthy way. And granted, we can certainly get frustrated with all this and asking the questions, why and what's fair, what's not fair? And we wish at times there would be just a simple explanation that would make it all better and would answer all of our questions or emotional needs. But you know what, family? There, there isn't a simple explanation. And it's not that God ignores us, but rather than explanation, what does God give us? He gives us promises. Why? Because He calls us into a personal relationship with Him, a relationship that's founded upon, built upon, and continues to be built upon faith and trust in Him. And if we recognize that God is sovereign, that he has never erred in anything, we realize, even though we ask questions like that, and I'm not saying don't ask those questions, but understand this, that God doesn't necessarily owe us explanations. You know, often we try to get our help to gather our explanations, independent of our relationship with him, but what if God gave us a one-size-fits-all explanation? Would that suit us? I don't think so. Because everybody's different. Every situation's different. And it may tend to satisfy us for a time. But there's something greater. There's something greater that God wants to do in us that won't be done in any other way. Because a one-size-fits-all explanation probably won't grow us. And the truth is, we need to grow. Because God desires that we grow in our relationship with him. In fact, Peter the Apostle, he said this in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow. How? In grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you see, family, Jesus wants us... One wants to draw us very, very close to him so that we can hear what he has to say in the uniqueness of, of who we are. I mean, he knows everything about each of us as individuals. As, as different as we are, he knows every single one of us intimately and completely. And no explanation from God can do what God can do in the intimacy of a personal relationship with him. And in his perfect Perfect wisdom and love only he can minister to us. Well, what can we do to process these apparently unfair things in a spiritually healthy way? Well, first, understand we live in a fallen world. And the world began to crumble. And the ways of the world began to fall apart way back in the book of Genesis when sin entered into the world. And when sin entered the world, Bad things happened, didn't they? I mean, Cain slew Abel. The curse was placed upon the land. Why? Because of sin. And we know today, certainly, family, bad things happen. All the apostles, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. Why? For simply following Jesus. They only did good. And of course, we have the life of Jesus Christ, who from the moment of birth was under the threat of death, wasn't he? Why? 
because he's Jesus. Jesus taught us regarding our expectations of life in Christ. In John 16, 33, he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He said, in me you're going to have peace. In the rest of the world, there's going to be tribulation, but I've overcome that. So be of good cheer. And in John 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And you know, we read these scriptures and, and we hear the words of our Savior but oftentimes we're surprised when bad things happen to us. As much as I know we live in an unfair world, it helps to be reminded of these verses. And our expectations concerning life and the Christian life, they need to be biblically based. We're not promised that life here would be fair. If you can find a scripture passage in the Bible that says life here on earth would be fair, then please, please point it out. I can't find one. And we're not promised to understand everything that happens in this life. Why? Because we're told to walk by what? Faith. And not by sight or by explanation. But sometimes we bring these expectations to our life, and then when our expectations aren't met, we can experience a faith crisis, can't we? Why? Because we're not addressing these things biblically. I'm not saying crises are, are easy. They're hard. They're heartbreaking. But we need to see things from God's perspective. We have to be careful to understand what God said in, in Isaiah 55, verse 8. He he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And if his thoughts are perfect and his ways are perfect, I have to recognize because he's God and I'm not, my ways are not right. My thoughts aren't right. They aren't perfect. And yes, we often ask God why, but God isn't obligated to explain himself to us. You know, when our daughter Erin was diagnosed with, with cancer, we asked God, why? God, why? Why our baby girl? When our granddaughter was diagnosed with leukemia, we asked God, why? Lord, why is she suffering as a three-year-old? He didn't tell us why. And if he did at the time, we probably wouldn't have understood or believed him and said, God, isn't there, isn't there some other way? Apparently not. Because looking back, you know, we realized that we were looking through a glass darkly. We didn't understand it. And it hurt. And it hurt. And it hurt. But now, we understand a little bit clearer because we've seen fruit from it. It was difficult. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you're experiencing something like that. And you're thinking, well, this, this just isn't fair. Understand that God has his reasons and he has his ways, he has his purposes. Now another point I'd like to make is this, that it's this, the difficulties in our lives never mean that God isn't in control. James's life was not out of control even in death. In fact, it was prophesied by Jesus. Remember the mother of James and John. 
In Matthew 20, in fact, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Turn back a few books. Matthew 20. It says this in verses 20 through 23. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, one, the one on the right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. God, can't you make a special place for them, a special accommodation? But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We're able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and I am being baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Now what's the cup that Jesus spoke of? What is that baptism? Well, here it is. I mean, he was rejected. And he was crucified. And to share that cup would mean that the disciples would take the same path. Yes, they, they would be despised. They would be hated instead of honored and praised. And Jesus, speaking of the cup of rejection and hatred that he was about to drink in the baptism of his death, he told them, you're going to be hated and rejected for my namesake. He told them he, they would have tribulation in the world. And of course they did, as we do as well. And to some extent, the, the disciples shared in the sufferings of Christ. Every one of them, as I mentioned, were martyred except for John. And his martyrdom was failed because legend says that they tried to boil him in oil, but it didn't work. God pulled him out. But God had other plans. Oh, they sent him to the, island, the forsaken, what they called it, the forsaken island of Patmos. A place that's full of rocks and just a nasty place. Let's just send him there. Let's exile John there. We won't hear from him ever again. But you know what? We're hearing from him even today. Because God met him there and gave him the whole book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's plan was far different than those that wanted to put John to death. There was a cup that belonged to Jesus alone. And that was the cup of judgment. And Jesus received the baptism that they would never experience. And that is divine wrath against sin that Jesus endured and here is James now fulfilling that which was spoken, that he would suffer. Now the last point we need to understand is this, and we try to put together, you know, the wise and, and what's fair, what's not fair. We need to understand that God numbers our days. And until that day, we are in indestructible King David knew this. 1 Samuel 20, verse 3 says, There is but a step between me and death. Most people don't realize that death is just a small step away. You know, think of your next step. David says it's just a step away. That's all that's between you and the moment you breathe your last. And certainly don't mean to frighten anybody or make you worry, but it's a reality. And it's a reality that most people don't even want to talk about hear about or even consider. I think about several years ago, there was a carload of five young ladies in Fairport oh, yeah, remember driving, remember? And their, their lives came to an end in the automobile accident. Never had a thought that morning when they woke up, well, today's going to be my last day. We're a moment away. That's what David said. And certainly in the mass shootings that we see throughout our country, and I'm certain that none of those folks woke up and said, today I'm going to get shot. But there was just a step between them and death. Each person has an appointed time. Psalm 31, verse 15 says, My times are in thy hand. Hebrews 9, 27, As it is appointed unto men once to die, 
but after this, the judgment. And the word appointed means there's a reserved date, a date set aside that God owns. And when he says it's time, then it's time. And until that day, you are indestructible. Job chapter 14, verse 5 says, Seeing his days are determined, the number of months are with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Well, it brings up the question again. Why did James die and Peter live? I don't know. Other than to know James's ministry was over and Peter's was not. And God took James home to glory. And when our ministries are over, it's time to leave because God says it's time. And every moment I live here, it's because of God's grace. And let me tell you this, I don't want to live even a minute apart from his grace. Not for a minute. Remember these verses when you're suffering at the hands of someone. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto to the wrath, wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. And if he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, you do what God asks you to do. What's he asking us to do? Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave vengeance in God's hands. That's, that's his job. God can do a much better job in avenging your case than you can. The apostles, they didn't wage war against Herod, did they? They left it in God's hands. And Herod was eaten by worms, and then he died. God took care of it. And if we take vengeance in our, in our hands, we take it out of God's hands. And if we try to execute vengeance, what happens, it's an endless cycle because it never satisfies. There's always something in the heart that says, I got to deal with this. I got to take care of this. When God says, no, 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 it's mine. You know, I think of our brother Harry and sister Dorothy some of you may not know that they had a son that was gunned down at age 21. A godly young man. Someone went up to his car and shot him. You know, talk about hurt, agonizing pain. And they, they still have pain in their heart, but I know this because I know them, that they've forgiven the assailant. And they've just continued to commit it to the Lord, commit it to the Lord, commit it to the Lord knowing their son Herschel is in God's arms and he's taking good care of him. But I can promise you this too, if, if Harry and Dorothy allowed that, that pain to turn into bitterness and anger, they probably wouldn't be here today. And mind you, I did ask them if I could share this and they said, absolutely, because it's all to the glory of God, amen? amen. And you know, and our hearts break for you, our hearts are saddened for you, but you know, you obeyed God's word and through the pain, through the tears, through the agony, to God, this is, this is yours. It, it belongs to you. You gave us our son for a time. His time was up. We thank you for him. We thank you for his life. And we thank you that we can entrust you for every single aspect of our life moving forward from, on, from this point in time. There's a lot of people that have experienced similar pain as the apostles did when James is executed and left retribution in the hands of God. It's painfully hard, but it's best because God says it's best. What's fair? God determines that. And we have to be reminded to family that when we go through difficulties, maybe not so extreme as we see in our brother and sister, or as extreme as we see in the Apostle James or the other apostles, we need to be reminded that this life isn't all about this life, is it? No, it's about the next life. And if you've received Christ, then, then you and I have the hope of heaven. 
and, and Herschel's experiencing the full glory of God in heaven right now, along with so many others, and praise God for that. And that gives you peace, doesn't it? That one day, because you've trusted Christ, you will see that young man again in a whole different way, in a beautiful way. Heaven's a wonderful place. Heaven's a perfect place. It's our home. And the life we live here is our home away from home, isn't it? This is our home away from home. Our real home's in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, the scriptures tell us. And one day we're going to hear these words. Well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Heaven's a real place. Hell's a real place. But you know what? Hell's going to be swallowed up one day. The devil's going to be swallowed up in the lake of fire. And we will be standing before the throne of our God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. The book of the Revelation tells us this, and I'm so thankful that they sent John to Patmos, aren't you? Because yeah. <laughs> he, he gave us these verses in Revelation 21, verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Don't you love that? You have tears today? God, he'll, he'll take care of that. There shall be no more death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No more sin. No more sin. No more temptation to sin. No more hatred no more sickness or sadness, no more pain, no more disappointment, no more hurt from others. But what will we see and hear and experience? Unspeakable joy in the presence of our Savior. That's what our Savior promises us. They believe that, no, this world is not fair. And I'm going to say this too. I'm going to go out on a limb to say, God is not fair. I deserve judgment, but he gave me salvation. Is that fair? God gave me glory I've deserved judgment. I'd say God is, he's incredible. He made a way for sinners like me and you to escape this temporal place and, and dwell and abide in the glory of heaven with him in this perfect place with our perfect God, our perfect Savior forever and ever and ever. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? But you know, heaven's reserved for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. Hell is reserved for the devil and his angels, his followers. But you know what? God sent an invitation to me to come into a relationship with him. And our RSVP'd, yes. Yes. And he said, you're mine. Do you belong to Jesus? Yes. Have you responded to the Holy Spirit of God that wants to just draw you to that place of beauty, peace, trust? Because in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus said, I've overcome that. Have you trusted in Christ? Yes. Harry and Dorothy, aren't you so thankful that your son trusted in Christ? Amen. 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 We're thankful for those that have placed their trust in Christ. And, it re and, and the, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents and turns to Jesus. If you haven't turned to Jesus, would you turn to Jesus today? He says, behold, I make all things new. You want to be made new? Then pray with me now, please. And Lord, I come to you now. I realize that, that life here on this, this earth is not fair. There's pain, there's hurt, there's sin, there's death, there's all the things that, that we as humans experience. But I want to I transcend that because I've placed my trust in you. So I come to you now. 
And I admit to you, God, I confess I'm a sinner. And I confess that I so need you. I need to be forgiven of all this sin. And I know that it's been dealt with on the cross. So I place my faith and trust in you. In your death. In your burial. And in your resurrection that promises me a new resurrected life too. I thank you for the cross. And I thank you for the empty tomb. And Father, I thank you most importantly for your son Jesus Christ, who just saved my soul, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.